Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, joint ventures, strategic alliances, real estate, affiliate and sponsorship deals, and more, including smaller deals that you can do without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for over 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Elliot Callen is the founder and president of Prosperity Financial Group, an industry authority in finance and a renowned contrarian investor. Elliot is a number one best-selling author in the business section with his most recent book, Driven, How to Elevate Your Success as an Entrepreneur, which provides valuable insights, lessons, and strategies on the path to successful leadership and entrepreneurship. Elliot, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Corey. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So listen, I, I want to get into the book. I want to get into all that you do working with the folks that you do. I want to hear some stories about your own deal experience, which I know you have. But before we get into all that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you what did you want to be? Because my guess is a an investor and an author and a and a coach and consultant and everything else you've done probably wasn't it at that age, but you tell me. When I was young, it was a great question, Corey. When I was a young kid, my dad was a small business entrepreneur. I didn't understand that. I had to work with him on weekends. I worked with him with a little bow tie. I was introduced me as his little sales manager. His territory was New Jersey to Boston, and we do meetings in Boston. We get up at four in the morning and go to Boston. It was a great life. But I figured what I really want to do is I want to become a CFO and then a CEO. And the company down the street from us, so to speak, was it and It was a okay. huge conglomerate. They were buying everybody out. They owned continental banking, they owned aerospace. They owned the telephone systems around the world outside the U.S. That's what I thought I'd be the CEO of. So even as a little kid, I wanted to be the CEO of a major organization. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Big vision. One other question looking back. What was your first deal of any type? It could have been something small when you were younger or early in your career. Anything that comes to mind, that was a deal that you remember. My dad was trying to teach, good, another good question. My dad was trying to teach me sales. So he was in the ink and pen business. He created some amazing inks and some inventions that put my brother and sister through law school. But he had a bunch of rejects. He had these green pens he made, kind of like Sharpies today, uh, green markers. And he said, I'm going to give you these green markers. This was in third or fourth grade. And I want you to sell them at school for a nickel apiece to all your friends. And I did. I gave me, he gave me... 100 of them, I sold to basically every kid in the school, came back with money, got beaten up a little bit for some money. But he said, if you could do this and sell this, which is a nickel, imagine what you could do to something really big. So that means you have the gift of gab. And that was, he was really proud of the fact that there was a gift of gab and the ability to talk and negotiate. And in a way, he created a little bit of fearless spirit in me, even though he didn't know it. I love that. I love that. It's so great. And it's amazing because 
You hear many stories where it goes the opposite way, right? Where parents are very, want people to follow a certain path and that risk-taking and entrepreneurial spirit is actually discouraged. So I always love when I hear it when it's encouraged. Well, I still think they would have rather been a heart surgeon. <laughs> Absolutely. Love it. Tell people a little bit more about what you're doing now. And then I want to go back and talk about some of the deals you've done in the past, but give people a little better idea of what you do and who you serve. Great. I, I have three entities here. So I've started companies three, four, and five here. First, for, first one is Prosperity Financial Group. It's a California-based registered investment advisor, your RIA, fiduciary investment firm. We have about a thousand clients between myself and five other advisors, manage upwards of $400 million, growing at double digits of net assets every single year for the last number of years, especially in this year, the, the few years that we've had that have been pretty horrible with COVID. We've had some amazing double-digit growth, um, and I've, I'm surrounded by an amazing team that does that. Prosperity Wealth Management is a national company. It's based here in the same office. It's got 55 advisors around the country, again, growing quickly. And those are all independent or fiercely independent, smaller advisors, same amount of assets, about four and a quarter million, four, $425 million. Um, and that's growing. And again, we where we do the back office for advisors, and they, they can just go out and do their own thing and stop bothering me and leave me alone and go ahead and have fun and try to remember what being an entrepreneur is instead of having employees and labor laws and lawyers on staff and all the things that I have to have, which you hate as a business owner, yeah. they don't have to worry about that. And the third one is a charity that I started eight years ago called A Brighter Day. Then it's at abrighterday.info, abrighterday.info. And we started that following the, the death of my son in 2015, and it unites resources on stress and oppression for teens and mm. their families with the goal of stopping teen suicide. And seven, eight years later, we are now touching thousands of families a month with our resources in different ways. So three entities that we've grown, all three have different end games. Uh, and it's pretty exciting what we're doing. I don't know. There's no such thing as a 40-hour work week for me, Corey. And as you know, you're talking to a lot of business owners, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of high-energy type A people like myself that just all we know is go, go, go. You know, we might drop dead of a heart attack one day, but we're going to keep going as long as we can and trying to stay in good health doing it. But that's who I am. And my wife said to me the other day, she said, listen, in five years, if you sell your company, are we going to retire? And I said, yeah, we'll retire, but I'm going to start another company. Right. That's what I do. She said, what's it going to be? I said, travel and leisure. We're going to go all over the world and write podcasts and do podcasts and write reports and travel for free to all five-star hotels everywhere. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. That's a business a lot, of, a lot of folks love to have, and I'm sure you can create it if you wanted to. That's awesome. So our audience knows that we have a lot of clients in the RIA space, in the wealth management space, and that kind of organic growth that you talked about in terms of your company is really phenomenal because the studies have shown that uh, a lot of firms, if, if you look at just purely organic growth, so that not deal-driven growth and not market appreciation, which of course for 10 plus years, a lot of people were, were all benefiting from, the average advisor is, is growing at only a three or 4% organic rate. So having that organic growth is phenomenal and it, and it certainly even helps with the deal-driven growth and valuations later on. So it's, that's pretty impressive. Thank you. I did, it's funny. I just met with a we call these mega firms. So you've got a lot of venture capital money that's gone in. You've probably touched that, you know, in your world. And so I'm what's called a mid-tier player. It's pretty funny because you put my two companies together. We're just shy of a billion dollars and I'm a mid-tier player. Yep. Not even a large player. 
which is pretty funny because I remember when $100 million was the largest. This was big. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I, saw, I was in this industry back then as well. Absolutely. Yeah. The goalposts keep moving on me here. So that's not really fair. <laughs> but we did this. And so I'm on the target list for so many companies that, and they're the brand names that you, I don't need to drop their names. You know, they're out there already. Everybody sure. knows they're out there. I'm out there looking for people that want to merge in and have fierce independence like me and not want to have the controls that a lot of big companies want. Because the bigger you are, the more controls you have to have because the more things can go wrong. Yeah. You just get more moving parts. Yeah. Um, so we look for the people that are more like me. They look at me in a mirror. Not that I don't want anybody to look like me. I, God forbid they look like me for their own <laughs> life. But there are people that like independence, that thrive on creativity. They're saying, just get out of my way and let me do my thing. That's what I, And those are the people that we look for as we're growing every day. Love it. Love it. So I want to take you back because I know you have experience in the, in the past with raising capital, with uh, doing M&A, buying and selling companies. Talk to us a little bit about that uh, past experience in your life. Yeah. So I've done this now, like I said, two, two times beforehand. And actually, there's even a third one in there. I, don't, I just don't really think of it as by itself. When I, when, after leaving the accounting world, the world of accounting, after I graduated from Rutgers in New Jersey in 1980, so everybody can get my age down. I didn't like accounting. It wasn't a good foot. It wasn't a good fit. My dad was right. I shouldn't have gone into it. And we started a packaging company almost from scratch. And we uh, went into business and we took over some of the uh, clients from Magic Marker, their industrial clients. They had just filed bankruptcy. Their industrial division had no value. We just kind of took it. They were happy to make us a deal. And we suddenly had a little client base and we grew that into a packaging company. And so this was my first experience, taking something from nothing and growing it. And we went to 35 employees and $5 million in revenue in just a few years. And here I am in my 20s. I really didn't know a lot of what I was doing. I, I was learning by the seat of my pants. I wish I had a mentor then. I wish I hired a CFO. These are things you wish you could do over again. Sure. And not instead, I brought in salespeople, but, didn't, but I handled the money. And that wasn't a good idea because I was too young to understand that. But what was happening there, Corey, that so many business owners go through, is I was outgrowing my ability to generate cash, free cash. And so I had a $50,000 line of credit. I thought that was huge. Then it went to 100. By the time 1986 rolled around, I had a $500,000 line of credit and bankers were throwing money at me. Yeah. And it was just wild what I was doing. And of course, October 1987 rolled around and the market tanked by almost 50% at the end of the Reagan era. And banks just started to call their lines of credit back very quickly thinking we've got something long-term. And 90 days later, the world had changed already back to what it was. But there yeah. was immediate, an immediate panic that set in at that time. Yeah. And I realized that I, this is going to be a, this is a painful experience. It's time for me to sell the business. And the way I learned that, Corey, is I knew I needed more capital. Yeah. But I was already $500,000 on the line of credit. And I seasoned tickets for the New York Jets. I'm sorry. I'm a lifelong Jet fan. We bleed green. I get it. If you're listening to this and you want to send me poor pity cards, I'm all up into it. <laughs> so I, my wife and I went to, this, went to a game and we're sitting in the stands and I realized that it was the beginning of the fourth quarter and we had been arguing over the business for the entire game at that point. Wow. And I just said, I've got to sell the business or I've got to refinance it because I'm going to six and a half days a week and I need to get money. And my first thought was, let me refinance it. Now you have all this venture capital money, Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto and New York and Chicago. There's a lot of free money that used to not be available. 
But in those days, what you did is you advertised yourself in the New York Times, the back of the business section for money wanted or venture money wanted. That's how you got money. And I put an ad in there, give or take two inches high, looking for capital. And I started to get phone calls from Arab sheiks and Middle East princes and New York and you know, Manhattan and Florida people who were retired that have money they want to throw you. And I finally said, I was talking to a Saudi Arabian prince at one point, and he said, look, I'll give you a million dollars. But I want to warn you because you seem like an honest guy, which I am, impeccably honest, not perfect, but honest. And I, he said, if this goes awry, if this doesn't work, because I think you've got some really good ideas on how to become a magnet in the packaging business, you are going to walk away without your house and probably just your car and the clothes you're wearing. Mm. Because we're going to go after all that. And we're not going to go after the mean way. We're not going to try to destroy you. We're just going to put a lean on everything you have to try to get our money back. Yeah. And you have to decide if that downside outweighs the potential upside. Mm. And he was being brutally honest, but he was accurate because it didn't at the end of the day. I met with my attorneys. I met with my new CPA firm. And we all decided the cost of growth was greater than the value of, of return. So I sold the assets. I stripped away the liabilities. I kept the liabilities. I sold away the assets. That was my first deal. I raised capital by selling away the assets, including the receivables, but I kept the payables. And then began to pay them off in a, in a smart way. And we did. It took me a little while to pay off the payables, but I had all this money coming in on note that was guaranteed by people's homes. And that was my first deal. Wow. So I want to I want to talk a little bit on the buy side, the sell side of that. So you talked about starting this, you talked about buying, you talked about magic marker. Like, how did that all come about? Like, you're 20-something. I was working for a big eight accounting firm at the time. And my father had retired from the ink and solvent business. Okay. And he was fortunate enough to create one of the colors of ink for Bic pen, if you remember Bic. Sure. And he put my brother and sister through law school with that little invention. <laughs> but he was done. He was old. He was sick. I didn't understand it. He had had multiple heart attacks. And he turned to me and he said, you hate what you do. He said, Magic Marker, I used to work with Magic Marker. I've got an idea. How about you and I do this together? I didn't know he would be gone within 90 days. Wow. I didn't know that. But he said, you would love this. And you've got a personality that's not an account. You hate what you do, which was true. You can't wake up in, during the day and hate what you can't wake up and hate what I do every day. You can't hate your boss. You can't hate your spouse. You can't hate your kids. You can't hate your, you cannot go through life hating your life. It's a terrible formula for success. 100%. It just doesn't work. And including marriage, you can't hate your spouse and say, but we're going to have a happy marriage. <laughs> you know, it, just, it doesn't work. And so it was with his help. He said, let me make a phone call. Let's go down and talk to them. And that's how we got started doing that. Uh, and then I didn't want to be in what he did because he knew inks and I, that wasn't me. It was a shrinking business. And it's basically a dead business because all the inks today are really been replaced with laser and printer sure. and so forth. That's sure. glad that didn't happen. But, but the packaging business was my little brainchild because I had already made contacts with Dow and DuPont and plastic companies and some of these major companies like American Cyanide, which became Monsanto had become my clients right off the bat. And they were making, at that point, packaging products and material products that were 
all poisonous for us in the environment. But I thought there'd be a niche for it. And, and I took, took to it and industrial tapes and I just loved it and created a brand and trademarked it called ProTape and trademarked the, the company, creative design, and, and just started to do some really creative things with it uh, and grow very quickly. And then on the sell side, you went through this idea, maybe you're going to invest more capital. You decided not to do that. You decided to sell it. Did you hire a banker or a broker? Did you, how'd you find your buyer? The buyers became the employees of the company. Ah. I had contacted a business broker. I had told my sales manager that I'm going to be doing this and I want you, I would, I'm going to give you some extra money so you stay here because I want you to know I'm going to do everything in my power for have them to buy the entire company and the team and try to keep your team together. Yeah. And he had said that he contacted his brother-in-law who was an oil, he was in the oil futures business. Yeah. And if you remember oil in the 80s yeah. was booming late 80s was booming. In the early 80s, it's terrible. In the late 80s, they couldn't do it. It was remarkable. They were just right printing money. Yeah. And the guy in his firm put up, they had a small futures business, and they put up the capital to buy me out. And it was something down, and over the next five years, I got money. Um, and that was enough to keep everybody going. And then he took over, and I literally set him up with all my leads. And then he moved the, he moved all the people down closer to where he lived, and I kept the rental space that I had in, in an office commercial park, redid it, renegotiated it out, subleased it out, had three trucks. I sold those away, three international 22-footers. I sold those and started to look for something new to do. So I'll tell you a funny story, Corey, about how you never know what's really going on. After I had sold my business, cleaned up yeah. the warehouses, made it look good, wanted to walk away with my head held high, even though inside of me, I felt at that moment a little bit like a failure mm. because I didn't, I knew I didn't recognize free cash flow and how that operated. Yeah. I just didn't recognize that. Yeah. I yeah. only knew that I was growing at 25% a year. That how, and the concept of how do you grow 25% a year and run out of money? How does that happen? But I mean, over time, you realize that's kind of classic. Like you are far from the only one that happens to, oh, right? Happens every day. And I, 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 but I didn't understand that. Again, too yeah. young to understand it and too inexperienced. To understand that, yeah. but I wanted to do something right. And my family had said to me, Elliot, maybe because of your experience as CEO, you should think about going to work for somebody as a VP of sales or something like that. And then maybe you'd get back into the CEO world, take a step or two backwards, VP of marketing, VP of sales. And so I went to work with this company in Philadelphia that did all these testing and interviewed you, and they found out what you were really good at. Yeah. yeah. All right. And I learned a few things about myself. And it's funny, I, and I hope everybody goes to companies like this. I learned I could never buy a McDonald's franchise because I could make a better burger. <laughs> so don't buy a formulaic, don't get into the formulaic business. Yeah. Because you're not going to be the kind of guy that wants to make every widget look exactly the same. Yeah. That's not you. Don't buy Taco Bell. Now, today, do I wish I had a dozen McDonald's franchises? <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. But that, that's what I learned about myself. So that's a good thing to learn about yourself. The second thing I learned about myself is I'm not the most employable guy because I still think like an entrepreneur. Sure. And, I, and so one company, two companies said to me, one was in the industrial automotive business in, in uh, Wisconsin, and the other one was based out of uh, Pennsylvania, and they were in the malls, and they did pictures of kids and kiosks in malls all around the United States. Yep. They both said the same thing to me, and they said, Elliot, 
you are so qualified to do what we want you to do because you're young, you don't have children yet, you've got energy that's boundless, um, and that makes a difference as an entrepreneur. You got to have the energy, but you at some point we either take our clients and do your own thing, or you'll leave us to start something totally different with a brainchild of yours. And right. that's when I knew I needed to get back in my own business. And that's a great learning lesson for an entrepreneur because family wants you to be happy and successful, but not necessarily on your terms, oh, yeah. on their terms. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. It's, and it's not because of anything negative. It's just that they're worried about you and they can only see. Listen, I, I've told a story several times about uh, one, my, my parents on one hand and also all kinds of other folks. My parents, of course, went, listen, I'm a lawyer, right? This is, it's 1991. I'm about to get a raise to make six figures, which is, I was at 90 something. I was going to make 105 or whatever it was, which in 1991 was, but today that's good money for some, for a lot of people. 1991, that was really, really good money, right? And I call my parents one day and I tell them I'm, I'm leaving. I'm starting my own law firm. No, I don't have any clients. No, because I worked at a firm that has big clients, long-term clients, not leaving anywhere. Yeah, I'm starting from scratch. No, I'm going to figure it out. And let, let's just say they were very worried, not happy. And then and then most of the people I talked to, friends, people I knew, whatever, they were all like, what are you doing? And it was, if you remember, 91 was a recession as well. They were like, what are you crazy? Like all kinds of lawyers were getting laid off from jobs. So like, and I'm voluntarily <laughs> leaving. And so all these people told me it was crazy. Now, the interesting part is, in 1995, so I started the firm really in 92. I left the end of 91, started in 1992. In 1995, we took our first real office space. We had been in like a shared office. And it was down at 40 Wall Street. And we had this nice office space, 3,500 square feet. at a corner office, view of the Statue of Liberty. I was really, we had a big party. All these people came. And the same people who three, who three years ago told me I was crazy. What, I was, what was I doing? Why was I leaving my job? How was this going to be successful? Told me that they all knew I was going to be successful. Okay. And the, like when they were standing in that space, they, oh, we always knew you'd be successful. They didn't remember what they said three years ago. The big difference was three years before that, they couldn't possibly see doing that, the, that themselves, right? They couldn't conceive of leaving a six figure job to start something with no clients. But when they're standing in that office with the view of the Statue of Liberty and the nice build out and the glass front conference room, or whatever, now they could see it. So now, of course, they always knew that I was going to be successful. Right. And that's how people always see you through their own filters. And it's not because they're bad people. In fact, most of the time they care about you, but it's just because that's how they see things. Right. Well, there's an old Jewish joke about that. As somebody else can say, because I'm Jewish, it's clean here. But the first Jewish person is elected president and they're there. The family's there for the inauguration. And here the mother who's in her 80, close to 80 is sitting in the front row. And when and the press comes up to her and says, we really want to know how you feel about your son who's about to become president and he's the first Jewish president. Are you really proud of him? And, and she goes, eh, kind of. Not as proud as I am of his brother. What do you mean? How could you not be proud of him? He's the first Jewish president. I said, his brother's a doctor. Right. You know, people have their own ideas of what's right for you. Well, this that's right. You should marry. This is the job you should have. This is the job you should, the car you should drive. Everybody has your best interest at heart from their perspective. That's right. That's absolutely right. I uh, love that. All right. So now we're at the point where you realize, nope, you got to be doing your own thing. Did you jump into financial services, the wealth management at that point, or was it something in between? No, I got it. I, I got somehow hooked up with a friend of mine from Columbus, Ohio, who was in the environmental cleanup business, air and water okay. remediation. Okay. And I thought that's a great business to get in. So the Superfund site had just been discovered up on Niagara Falls, if you remember that, and called Love Canal. 
And yep. I thought, well, this is an interesting program. And there was a major soils discovery in New Jersey along the Pacific River of Agent Orange created by American cyanamide that was in 55-gallon drums buried along the river that was decaying. And thankfully, I had contacts and so forth. And that's I got some of that soil moved to the state of Washington State, where a lot of deadly uh, soil goes in our country, to the eastern side, the high desert side of Washington State. And I was able to put my fingertips in that and toes in that water. And I got into the environmental cleanup business. And I stayed in that for five years. And I did a little bit of work with the FBI along the way with some consulting work, doing some math for them. If you've ever seen the numbers, show numbers, doing math for the FBI to work on pyramid schemes, discover breaking down pyramid schemes. And so I knew by the time 1992 came around that the environmental cleanup business was evaporating. Yeah. Sorry for the pun on that. But it was disappearing at the end of the George Bush senior administration. It was going away. All the big money had been made unless you were going to do government cleanup of government sites. And I wasn't going to do that. And so I knew I wanted to get back and do something. And I investigated the financial services business. And I thought I would take what I learned from the big eight county firms or partners or set of areas, go into different financial services and insurance businesses, combine the two and do something like that. And I met with Shearson in Florida, who was a family friend. I met with Merrill in Jersey and Lincoln in Jersey and somebody in Philadelphia. And I didn't hear anything I liked. And my wife got pregnant with twins after three miscarriages. And she's the California girl. And we decided to come to California. She came out here, brought me back to San Francisco Chronicle. And there was a little ad from Lincoln. Oh, no bigger than this. Said, come in here. And I met with them when I came out here and started the business division with Lincoln. They were wonderful people. And that's how I started my career. And we stayed there until 99 when I took the entire division. And we left and started Prosperity Financial Group. Mm. In 99. So that was, yeah, that was real, that was pretty early in the, in what's now called the independent advisor movement, but very early. It didn't even have a title yet. Nobody yeah. called it that independent yeah. advisor. Just you were independent, right? So you were an independent channel. Let's take a break from the show for a minute. So I can tell you about an incredible resource. My team and I have put together for you secrets of deal driven growth, creative ways to grow your business. Even in challenging times is a powerful ebook that helps you take DealQuest podcast episodes and apply them to your own life and business. This is the ideal tool for anyone looking for creative ways to grow as dealmakers, and you can get yours now. It's as easy as heading to coreycuffer.com workbook and downloading your copy. While you're there, you can also consider joining our dynamic deal-driven community of founders, experts, small business owners, and entrepreneurs. Now back to the show. So, Talk to me about that, because obviously now, listen, as you know, and we, we've done hundreds, literally hundreds of transitions of advisor teams out of warehouses and banks and insurance companies and IBDs, they go independent. But that, now, they, and I've been doing it for a lot of years, now there's such a infrastructure and the custodian, because what the custodians offer with tech vendors and consultants, and there's a whole ecosystem that supports moving the independence. But in, in, in 1999, there was pretty much none of that. So talk about that that transition that you didn't have a lot of people to help you figure out how to do it on your own, right? No, we had a good company. Raymond James created an independent uh, division. Yeah. Yep. Well, Raymond James Financial Services. I'm not even sure they're still around anymore because yep. they've kind of gone to a different model on there trying to recruit the big, the teams from the brokerage houses like Merrill Lynch and all that's far yep. more profitable for them. But 2000 is when we really got heavily into it. And it was a tough time because the dot-com bust happened. So the market tanked. We were trying to work with our clients. They were getting frustrated because 
some of their portfolios dropped in half overnight. Yep. Uh, and then I was in the middle of a divorce. So <laughs> 2000, what I, I say at that time was a really rough year for me. And we lived on credit cards a lot. But you know something? I had a lawyer that said to me in my divorce, he said, listen, Elliot, let me ask you a question. If you walk away with nothing more than your business and your ability to be, because you can't lose your business, but your ability to be a father, a good father, because I know that's important to you. Yes. And ability to be a business owner, would that be enough? Yes. And I said, uh, yeah. He said, then let's see if we can get your house too. And I bought my ex-wife out of the house. So I walked away with my company. I had to write her some pretty big checks and ongoing money for, for a significant amount of time. Sure. Uh, but I walked away with my head held high and I made a decision I'd be a great dad. So the five out of seven days I had my kids, no daycare. I picked them up at three o'clock and we went and played dad. I played sports. And you know how it is in those days with sports. Or same how it is today. You're busy seven days a week with sports. We were like that. It was a great life. But boy, you're running around like a chicken with your head off and you're starting a business uh, from scratch and you're talking to people and they're saying, no, so what do you do? How do you get that done? You don't work enough hours. And right. I said, I opened up the office at six every day. And they're like, why do you get there so early to do stock trading? I said, no, I'm not a jo stock jockey. And I, I can't be a stock jockey at 6.30 in the morning. I, that's There's no money in that. So, but I want to be the first one in there. So I accomplished more by 10 in the morning than most people did by three in the afternoon. And thankfully, my dad, knock on wood, gave me this incredible work ethic. It's probably a double-edged sword because hard work is a double-edged sword. But he had this phrase that nothing you do can make up for hard work. Mm. And then my mother had this program that talking my other ear, this is called my schizophrenic issues with my mother in one ear and my dad in the other ear. And, and my mother said, you can do better tomorrow than you did today. Mm. So every day when I came to work and I do this today, I always feel like I could do better than I did yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Let's talk about the book. We mentioned in the bio, number one Amazon bestseller. Tell us about the book. It's called Driven. It's over my left shoulder. Thank you for bringing that up. It's written with a friend of mine, Adam Torres, um, who uh, runs a web development company. And he's, he calls himself an accidental entrepreneur. Uh -huh. But I wanted to write a book for years. This is a full book for years about entrepreneurship, not about why you need to buy a stock or a bond or a mutual fund or finance, but I wanted to write about entrepreneurship and leadership mm. because I think they're tied together. Yep. Because some people think that the two best entrepreneurs in America are coming out of Facebook and coming out of Amazon, those two companies. So because you have two people that are in a multi-billion dollar business from Meta and and uh, not Facebook and Amazon, those yeah. two people. I don't need to mention their names. Everybody knows their name. Jeff Bezos yeah. and, and Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. And here they are, Mark Zuckerberg in college. He's in the cafeteria eating one day, and the next day he's a billionaire. And you think so? Entrepreneurs got this impression from late night TV and Channel Seven and Five that all you got to do is come up with a neat idea, get a couple of people at Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto to fund you. And the next thing, you're a billionaire, and then you're on the New York Stock Exchange. You're retired at 45 right. with 10,000 you know, pieces of Bitcoin. <laughs> it's easy. I don't know yeah. why everybody doesn't do this. Yeah. And I know that for me, as I've already told you, my track in life is amazingly like that. Up, down, sideways, backwards. Even I'm amazed, Corey, on how unstraight my own personal line of life is. <laughs> I laugh at that. But it's true. And so I wanted to write a book to give permission 
for entrepreneurs to have that same course mm. to understand that perseverance is a strength. Yep. Fortitude is a strength. Charity and legacy are characteristics you don't want to lose. And honesty is rare, but so important, but not perfection because that doesn't exist. Mm. That's what I wanted to write about. And I talk about charity and I talk about how my dad had no money and my parents were in the middle of a depression and somehow they managed to give 10%. They tied 10% every week to charity. That was pennies. That was like 25 cents went to charity. We're talking about small dollars sleeping on the floor with coats and so forth, but they always gave, or we had to give back to cousins who needed help on weekends. We go work their small store because they couldn't afford somebody. So you're now the bicycle fixer in a small bike shop and you're the lawnmower engine guy for, for your cousin and need the lawnmowers fixed. And you'll learn this stuff. And those are great lessons to learn as a kid. And that's what I, that's what the book's about. Learning life lessons. And the biggest lesson is entrepreneurs never fail. But boy, do we have some expensive learning lessons. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's interesting, the, especially for folks, younger folks, the folks just, even though they're not young, they haven't been through it, newer entrepreneurs, let's put it that way, because there are plenty of corporate refugees who become entrepreneurs and you know, even at a later age. And in fact, it's, a, it's somewhat of a myth of this, everybody's a 22-year-old founder. Like the, the average age is much higher than people think of newly founded companies. So whatever stage you're at, though, but it, it is very different, right? And boy, am I with you on the perseverance. I, I We had this entrepreneurs organization, which I've been a member of since the start of 2008, had this event one time. They called it the Night of the Living Dead. And it was it was entrepreneurs telling their worst of the worst of what happened to them and just sharing it. And the difference about it was, because there's many, many entrepreneurs who talk about their tough times, but it's very often just a prelude to the hero's journey, right? To the comeback story. This was just, no, this was none of the comeback story, none of the hero's journey. This was just the worst of the worst in your life, whatever. And the reason for it was not to depress people, but it was really for everybody, for the 50 or so entrepreneurs who were in that room to understand that everybody has been through something, right? And the ones who are still in that room, because they're still entrepreneurs, are the ones that persevered through that adversity, whether it was personal divorce, whether it was bankruptcy, whether it was other business challenges, whether it was partners stealing money from that. I mean, you name it. Every story in the book was there, and, and they were still going. It's In the movie Rocky, not to quote some literary movie here, but <laughs> there's a phrase where, where Rocky Balboa says, and I believe it says it to his son, maybe he says it to another boxer. It's not how many times you get knocked down. It's how many times you get back up. And I made my kids constantly repoke that to me. When you get knocked down, what do you do? You get back up, dad. I got it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So in terms of what you do with clients, and I know you got the business where, you know, but in terms of your own, let me ask you this way. Are you dealing directly with clients in terms of the planning and wealth management side of things in your businesses at all? I have 120 of my own clients. All right, I thought that was the case. So in terms of that, in terms of providing that wealth management and other financial planning and other advice that you give these folks, how has your experience as an entrepreneur and as a deal maker impacted that ability to work with people and the advice you give them? Because I'm sure some of them are entrepreneurs and, and growing businesses. So how does that, that experience influence your advice? Life has a way, great question. Life has a way of not just making you humble, but bringing humility to you. Humility and empathy are two incredible traits, not humbleness, but humility and, oh, I'm sure I the word I just said, uh, empathy. But, uh, empathy. Yeah. They're great at giving you the ability to talk to people 
and listen from their point of view. Yeah. I, th- I think that's the best thing I do. I think what I've got going for me that there are very there's a, a plethora of competent financial advisory firms in the country. Yeah. I'm not that unique on that. What makes me unique to me and to a lot of people in their own way is I'm exceptionally approachable. I care and I think I'm doing research all the time. I want to succeed for you. I want you to succeed. Your money is my money. You're my brother. You're my father. You're my son. I wouldn't treat you any differently than in my own family. That's what makes me unique, I believe. And the people who know me feel like that's who I want to work with. He know he not only knows me, he cares as, as if it's me. He talks to me about my kids. He talks to me about my marriage. He understands where I'm coming from. I'm bitter. I'm divorced. He's talking to me about that. How to get over the bitterness. If there's a death in the family, we talk about the death in the family. I can empathize. I've had my own share of tragedy there. That's what makes you wonderful is empathy. I wish my children had the same level of empathy and the next generation was as empathetic as the greatest generation of World War II that had no other option but to be empathetic at that time as they went to war. And today, we're a little cocky. I don't need to care about you. I care about me. I drive a bigger car than you because I want to. I drive a nicer car, nicer house, prettier spouse, better looking shirt. Custom, all these things that we compared with each other that are the exact opposite of someone who's empathetic about the person is, is the world we live in, the material world. Empathy, you can't measure in a nice shirt. You can't do that. But I can measure in how I care for you. And if you have a tr- something going on in your life, I can pick up the phone or I can stop by your house and say, hey, can I help you? Yeah. Is there anything I can do? Yeah. That's, yeah. A good, that's empathetic. Love that. Love that. Anything else before I ask you my final two questions, anything else that comes to mind, whether it's, you know, related to past deal experiences, things you're seeing in your space now currently in terms of wealth management, financial services around deals, or anything else that comes to mind that we haven't covered before I ask you my last two so, so, when, so far, what I've learned about the deals, because I get hit with uh, what feels like a deal a week, it's probably not, but it feels like it sometimes, <laughs> is that most people are, want to buy me out with my own money. Yeah. Here I spent a bunch of years building a brand up, Prosperity Financial Group. Sometimes they feel like we're the Band-Aid brand, but it has no value. Like, just drop them. We don't care. They're not listening to me at all. They said, oh, you've done a great job building up your business. So we just want to throw it away and get your clients. So they want my assets. They don't really care about me. And if that, and if I die tomorrow, they'd give them out to other people at the firm. Sure. Yeah. And so there's not really that you're, my, you're part of my family. We want you in our family, Elliot. And I think if somebody came to me and said, I want you in my family because I care about you, and I want you to walk away from this whole deal one day feeling like you have succeeded rather than walked away and left something on the table. I'd be interested in that, but I almost never hear that. I do hear that a little bit sometimes, little bits of here and there, what's going on. But for the most part, it's about we want your assets. And frankly, if you died, I hope you don't. But if you did die, we'll make sure your wife gets the money. Sorry about that. <laughs> Got it. So when can people find out more about your various businesses? What websites or anywhere else you want to direct them? Absolutely. For Prosperity Financial Group, it's www.prosperityfinancialgroup.com. My email is Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T, at prosperityfinancialgroup.com. My cell is 510-206-1103. And I put out my cell because I live on my cell, like everybody else. And for the charity, if somebody's so inclined and they want to get in a world of stopping teen suicide and helping teens, and this is important to them, I know 
Today happens to be Giving Tuesday. I know you're not, nobody's listening. It's not Giving Tuesday. But unfortunately, fundraising is the mother's milk of charity, and it's just how it is. And that's abrighterday.info. And we'd love for you to check out our resources. Everything we do is free. Love it. Love it. And the book, I assume they can get on Amazon and everywhere else. Amazon.com. Driven by Elliot Callen. Two L's and one T. Elliot Callen. Adam Torres is in there, too. But if you put Elliot Callen, it pops up. I don't know how many copies we sold, but because all the, all the profit from there goes to the charity, not to me personally. I'll never take a penny from the charity. Right. Love that. Love that. Elliot, my final question of the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means freedom from around the world for all people from oppression to why I'm, I've been an entrepreneur and haven't had a boss in decades. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? It's a great question. You're going to get different answers from different people. We live in a volatile political world, so freedom can be very political in there. Yep. But I, I won't do the esoteric global thing. But for me personally, about 10 years ago, I sat down with my wife. And this is wife number two. Hopefully, it's not en route to wife number three. <laughs> and I'm hoping I'm not the guy between one and three either. Uh, <laughs> but I have a great marriage, and I have a wonderful wife, uh, and I'm very fortunate and blessed with all that stuff. But I said, you know, Tammy, I advise people in retirement every day of the week. And it's not just financial advice. We talk about what are you going to do? Because the average senior watches TV four hours a day. Mm. That's not a good financial plan. Mm. And so we talk about that, whether it's golf or travel or dinner or, or wine or grandchildren. What's your plan? So I said to her, what's our plan in retirement? Mm. And I'll give you a little bit of a winded answer to a short question, if that's well, okay with you. That's great. And we both said, we took out a piece of paper, literally, I said, what do we like to do above all else? And when I was younger, I lived in Europe. I lived in Geneva for a short period of time. So for me, traveling, and particularly Euro travel, is a really big thing. I love to travel. My wife loves to travel. She gives me the permission to just do all the effort, put in all the, just do it all. And she said, I'll never complain about what you do. I'll be a great sport because I don't say do this or do that. Just run it by me. And I do it all. We have a great time. I mess up something on every trip, but they're great trips. So travel is number one. Yeah. We love great food. We love to yeah. cook great food. I become a bit of an amateur chef and she's my number one critic, but she loves the cooking too. We have a thousand bottle wine tasting room, uh, a lot big caps, mostly big caps and some sins, all from California. And we collect it, we buy it, we drink it, we party with it. We do that. Those are the big things. Food, wine, and travel are our big things. That's why I wouldn't mind starting a leisure business in retirement. And I said, we talked about this, and I said, how about golf? Because we belong to a country club here in California. And we both agreed we like golf. We don't love golf. If for some reason physically we couldn't golf, we survive. We go to the gym like four or five days a week, and I go at 4.45 in the morning. If that didn't happen, we'd walk every day. If that didn't happen, we'd do something different. We're passionate about being in shape, even though I, I always feel like I'm out of shape, but whatever. So we do that. And I said, why are we going to wait to retirement to do that? Let's do it now. Mm. And that's what we started to do. So for me, the freedom is the ability to say, like I'm doing this summer, okay, five days in Munich, 12 days in, or, in, or, or 10 days in Austria, and four days in Crete. That's our summer. And I got a daughter in Dallas. We're going to go see. We had a grandchild on the way and one who's there now. I got a son in D.C. We're going to go there whenever we want. And we'll go to Hawaii in December. That's a lot of being on a plane. That's a lot of 
eating out. That's a lot of great entertaining. And we love to have people over for dinner. Corey, come over and eat and share our great wine with us because we're not saving it for a rainy day. We're saving it for you and people <laughs> like you. We want to have great products and great wine and great friends. And that's what freedom means. Love, love that answer. And I know we had, you know, pre-call, we shared our common love of travel, great food, wine, and great company. So I'm on board for all of that. The door's open and you let me know. You're in, where you're in Chicago, right? No, I'm in California most of the time. I'm in Marino del Rey. Oh, you're in Southern California. Let, yeah. well, let's yeah. figure it out and we'll, we'll have to do some exchange of food and wine somewhere. <laughs> love that. Love that. Elliot Callen, thanks for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks for having me, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. The Deal Den is a place where entrepreneurs, high-level executives, and business leaders come together, support each other's growth and success, and share what's working best as well as what challenges we are facing right now. You will get input not only from me, but from all of our members. We collaborate and serve each other. To join us, go to coreycupfer.com slash deal then. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.